Slavery is a touchy subject that people don't like to talk about in Canada. When we talk about slavery in Canada, in fact, we try to talk about our neighbor, the United States. Yes, they have a longer history, and yes, they had way more slaves than what we had in Canada. Also, they had slaves before we were called Canada. However, Canada has a 200-year history and over 4,000 slaves that were registered in provinces like PEI, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia. It's something that we don't talk about, that there was 200 years of people getting free labor and people of color getting slaughtered until the emancipation of the British colony in 1863. Today we're going to try to shed some lights about some stories of slavery in our country and why doesn't it get talked enough? Let's start the show. Four, three, two, one, fill your cup up and chug for the joint now and get What's up and welcome to another episode of Black and the Maritimes. I'm Fidel and today we're going to talk about slavery. Uh, this is a touchy subject because it's kind of complicated but you don't hear about it a lot. Not in the mainstream media, not in the history books, not in any type of books in Canada. And we're going to, we're referring to Canadian slavery just to make sure. Because uh, again, if you want to talk about US slavery, there's tons of books, tons of documentary, tons of films. Uh, it is kind of silly the amount of information that we have about the United States than it's, uh, you know, information in Canada, uh, which is, again, it's, it's kind of crazy that that is this case. And we're going to try to explain why and also hear some clips of why is it forgotten? And uh, I will tell you a little bit of that myself. Uh, there's a reason why people want it to be forgotten. One because slavery in Canada is really complicated. Why is it complicated? Because we have the blacks, uh, which is this podcast mostly about black people, people of color in Canada. But we have the indigenous. And slavery for the indigenous is way different than the slavery of blacks. And hear me out. The reason why it is so different is because the repercussions of slavery and colonization are still affecting the indigenous in a heavy way till this day. Uh, we just recently discovered graveyards of children in residential schools. So the people of color didn't have to go through that. They weren't recolonized. They weren't retrained as much as the indigenous, because the indigenous were already here. Uh, the slaves, the black slaves, were brought either from Africa or the United States. Uh, so that's the main difference. The main difference is, is that there's two sides of this. Now, out of respect for the indigenous people, and we are in indigenous land, we can't tell that story. That story belongs to the indigenous to tell. As a black man, I would not feel comfortable talking about that story because it's so long and it has so many repercussions that we could spend years talking about this uh, from the perspective of the indigenous. So that's one of the reasons why Canada never talks about it because there's two sides on it. Uh, the other thing is that a lot of the people that founded Canada were slave owners. Uh, that's the other part. The part that 
they don't want you to know is that people that you may not even know, like John McDonald, Ephraim Johns, Hazelton Spencer, David William Smith, and Francois Bavy, uh, they were members of the Parliament of Upper Canada uh, and the Legislative Assembly. So a lot of the people that founded this country were slave owners, and we don't talk about that. We don't want to talk about that because it doesn't that doesn't look nice in our history. So that is one of the things. And the other thing that we want to make sure that we don't leave is that slavery is something that because we have a neighbor that has so much history and has so much things that you could talk about, we try not to make that conversation happen in our side just because, again, we're dealing with these type of things today. And the government doesn't want to talk about reparations and things like that. Although I do have to say that in recent years, because of Emancipation Day and the Black and the Black funding that they have done to nonprofits and things like that, it has gotten better. But talking about those issues means that there has to be some type of, you know, repercussions or there's been apologies or things like that. So we don't want to get to that because we don't want to look like the United States. Uh, and we always look to the United States as, oh, they're really, really bad. So we're not that bad. So th those are things that we have to take in consideration when it comes to slavery in Canada. Uh, we're going to play a clip from the CBC that talks about a documentary called Enslaved. That I saw it is Samuel L. Jackson in it. it. It's very interesting. I think it's three part or four part series. You can watch it on CBC James gem for free. Uh, but we're going to talk about this clip uh, about what they say about slavery in Canada and why is it forgotten a lot. So let's hear it. People who were enslaved were held in this cell until it was time for them to be shipped out. Enslaved is a new documentary series on the history of the transatlantic slave trade. This fake currency was created to be used in Africa to buy a human being. The director of the series was shocked at the sheer scale of it all. I didn't know we were talking about 400 years of trafficking in Africans. I didn't know that we're talking about 12 million Africans trafficked to buy. Enslaved is part of a new surge in interest, from Janelle Monet's Antebellum we are the future. to the new series, The Good Lord Bird. I am here to defeat slavery. And the upcoming series, The Underground Railroad, chattel slavery is in the spotlight. And when that happens, Canada tends to play the hero, such as Brad Pitt as the Canadian in 12 Years a Slave. We've enshrined 30 years and painted ourselves as only good abolitionists who saved black Americans. And we've totally obliterated, ignored, and tried to erase 200 years when we were actually also slaving. People carrying their kids. Indeed, Enslaved follows the Underground Railroad onto the water, where they make the first positive identification of a boat that ferried enslaved people to Canada. It was where people went from being objects in the United States to, to free people in Canada. But when it comes to Canada's own history of slavery... Have you ever seen any media about that? We're talking about black slaves? Yeah. I really didn't know. I thought it was the place of uh, sanctuary, salvation. You won't find it in school or on the screen. Now students like Tanisha are working to change that. Here is where producers and historians agree. The roots of racism began on the boats and stretches all the way to the death of George Floyd. They think it's a 21st century or 20th century anomaly. 
and it's not. When I see that, I see slavery. A way to reckon with the past for a better path forward. Eli Glasner, CBC News, Toronto. That's one of the reasons that Canada tries to kind of hide the slavery because we tend to look as the heroes. And the reason why we tend to look as the heroes is because it was so worst in the United States that we say, well, we were better slave masters. And to be honest, there's nothing good about being a slave master. There's nothing good about it. And that's one of the things that Canada wants to portray. We want to portray the Underground Railroad. We want to portray that the liberated blacks came here or they came to be liberated because we abolished slavery first. But we really had 200 years of slavery here. And it's something that we don't see enough. We don't actually see that. You can see it in places like the Book of Negroes, uh, which we can talk about that a little bit. And we're going to play a clip from a student uh, of Canadian History 101. And he explains a little bit about a place called Birchtown in Nova Scotia, that it looks like a place that has a lot of rich history of black people. And it's the place that we get most of the stories of the Underground Railroad, but he kind of explains it pretty good uh, of what the town in Nova Scotia has the history of and explains it how Negroes were actually treated in those days. And this town was actually founded by black people in Nova Scotia. If you don't know, Nova Scotia has the richest black history in Canada and their slave trade uh, came through Nova Scotia at some points, also came through Quebec. Uh, but that is something that we want to emphasize. So let's play a clip by this student. Uh, the channel is called Canada History 101. There's only one video posted, but it's really, really good video. So I'm going to play that and we're going to analyze it. Hello, this is Canadian History 101. I'm your host, Hide French, and today's topic will be on Birchtown. So what is Birchtown? Well, Birchtown is a small community located just outside of Shelburne. To the naked eye, it may seem like every other small town, but it is in fact rich with history. This town was one of the reasons that inspired the well-renowned author Lawrence Hill. In one of his novels, The Book of Negroes, Birchtown is mentioned as one of the main characters in the name of Amenita Diallo ventures through it on her journey. Birchtown is a piece of historical magnificence to Canada, and every Canadian should know its past. Let's start with the beginnings of Birchtown. So, how did it all started? Well, it was the beginning of the American War of Independence and slaves were recruited by the British for the war. These slaves were loyal to the British Empire, so they would be known as the Black Loyalists. In exchange for their service, the British promised them their freedom and some land. So, when the war ended, many settlements were made all over New Brunswick and Nova Scotia for these Loyalists. The biggest and most recognized out of these was called Birchtown. It was 1783 when the town was created. It was founded by Stephen Bluke and named after Samuel Birch. These two would be considered the two most important figures in Birchtown history. Stephen Bluke was known as the commander of the companies of the Black Loyalists when he first settled in Birchtown and was the leader of the Free African Americans during this time. He was also one of the people that heavily influenced where Birchtown was to be settled 
and helped people in the community by being a teacher. Samuel Birch, on the other hand, was a general and was responsible for recording the names of the residents in the Book of Negroes. Not to be confused with the book written by Lawrence Hale, this was a document that contained details about the names, ages, places of origin, and personal situation of the people. He also created birth certificates, which were passports that established the freedom for these people. During this time, Birchtown had a population of around 1,500 to 2,000 people, and the population grew even higher as loyalists that have stayed in Shelburne were being attacked. These acts of violence towards the loyalists from the citizens of Shelburne caused them to move to Birchtown. This would be known as the Shelburne Riots. Although the population of Birchtown seemed steady, it has drastically decreased because of the departure for Sierra Leone. So what was this departure for Sierra Leone? Well, the people of Birchtown lived through a very tough lifestyle. This is because they had a poor land, inadequate supplies, harsh climate, and experienced discrimination. The people of Birchtown and many other loyalist communities thought that they were not promised what they deserved from the British Empire. Because of this, the Brits agreed to letting them move to a settlement called Sierra Leone in West Africa. Many black loyalists agreed to this proposal and sat sail. The majority of these people were from Birchtown and it greatly affected their population. Now let's look at the rest of its history from then to today. Even though many of the citizens have left Birchtown because of the Sierra Leone, there were some who stayed and it still survived as a small rural community. In 1994, the Black Loyalist Heritage Society made applications to the National Historic Sites and Monuments Board to have the landing of the Black Loyalists in Canada recognized as an event of national historic import. This would be granted in 1996 as they honored the Black Loyalists by creating a park and unveiled a monument in their memory in Birchtown. In spring of 2015, a museum in the name of the new Black Loyalist Heritage Center was opened, and it takes visitors on the journey of the earliest settlers to Nova Scotia. Visitors can also trace their heritage through the names from the Book of Negroes. Now, as you could hear, you can see the history of how the English kind of traded with the slaves black saying, hey, look, uh, we're going to give you your freedom if you fight for us and we're going to give you some land, uh, which eventually this turned into Canada. Again, this is one of the reasons that we don't talk about it is because a lot of the naysayers said, well, it wasn't Canada at that point. It was different provinces that became into Canada. But the reality is, is that the same people that founded this country were the slave owners. So it's it was the country and they had this trade and they did the same as the Civil War in the United States, that the Civil War, what they did, it's the same thing. They took slaves, they fought uh, and they promised some land and freedom. So that is the story that we try to portray. We try to portray that we were better we gave the things first and certainly we did but we try to obey that they were slave trade these people were traded as property and these people were traded as a commodity 
in our country. So that's one of the things that we don't try to portray in in our society. And shout out to this kid that actually did this video. Uh, it was really great how he explained the history of Birchtown. And we did an episode about Canadian black neighborhoods and communities. And Birchtown wasn't mentioned because I kind of wanted to save it for this because I think it has a more impact about what we're talking about. But definitely check that check that episode out. And you can learn more about black communities in Canada. Now, I'm going to go still in the Maritimes. And we're going to go with a friend of the podcast, Mr. George Elliott Clark. He actually talks about the trade and he actually talks about what they did for a living and, and how were they treated and how were they actually uh, commoditized, like what the trade-off was like to pick that. There were A lot of them were apple pickers, servants and things like that. So let's hear him. This is an interview that he did and it's very interesting what he talks about the blacks and the slaves in Nova Scotia, PEI and New Brunswick. And, and of course the, the history of slavery which definitely implicates Nova Scotia and New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island and Ontario and Quebec. Uh, all these uh, five eastern provinces uh, all were colonial, uh, in terms of colonial Canada, were all slaveholding societies. And especially Nova Scotia, and I say especially Nova Scotia not because they had the most slaves, but because Nova Scotia was really settled in terms of governance by slaveholders. So one reason why race relations in Nova Scotia tend to appear to be more pitched and more American than black-white race relations, especially elsewhere in the country, is because Nova Scotia was settled by people who would have been Americans in another 20, 30 years. Right. Uh, these are, Nova Scotia mainland was settled by planters who came from the South and came from New England. They were Yankees and they were Dixies. They were the government class in Nova Scotia. They established the colony of Nova Scotia. And they came in as slaveholders. They kicked out the Acadians, 1755. They arrived in 1760. Did they bring their slaves? Yes, of course, hundreds, hundreds. So Nova Scotia begins as a slaveholding society. So what year, this, what year is this? 1760, 1760, when the planters arrived. And yeah. the, so the legislature, in, the legislature in Halifax is one of the oldest legislatures in Canada, right? Yeah. It's like 17, 1770 yeah. at the same time in there. That's right. So these these planters, as it were, they were former Brits, as it were, oh, who had moved south and spent their 10, 20, 30, or 100 years and then moved up. Is that right? Well, yeah. Originally, it would have all been from, from England, Scotland, Ireland, and so on. But by the time they came to Nova Scotia, they were Yankees. They may not have yet called themselves Americans because America didn't yet exist. They were Yankees. But they were Yankees. And if they had not made the move in 1760 to Nova Scotia, in 1776, they would have been amongst the, the rebels against the British. So when they arrived in Nova Scotia, they came with them, or they brought with them an ideology that was already Yankee, that was already pro-slavery, that was already... A, of course, the British were pro-slavery too, so no big, no big deal. So this is the Cornwallis statue in Halifax, which is a particularly sore point of all the statues across <laughs> all the country. There are a lot of histories. Well, John East uh, as well. Cornwallis is, you know, was a was a kind of a strike point to say what is yeah. the statue of this guy standing proudly in in the capital city of Nova Scotia. Well, he he establishes Halifax, seventeen forty nine, uh, and he did come directly from England. Um, and, and of course, a name for the Earl of Halifax, 
And of course, uh, some may know, or many may know, that there is a Halifax in England, which I must go and visit someday. Uh, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's bigger or smaller than Halifax, Nova Scotia. But anyway, um, uh, that's a side point. But nevertheless, uh, Cornwallis arrived to establish Halifax as essentially a military outpost. That's another point, too, that gets lost. And of course, North Fry talks about the garrison uh, mentality and, and so forth in, in, in terms of development of colonial Canada. But Halifax really was a garrison city. Uh, and the reason why was because of Fortress Louisbourg, which was, of course, a bastion of French power. Um, and the Americans, or people who were going to become Americans, another generation, re really felt threatened by France and felt threatened by uh, Fortress Louisbourg. So they needed to have a port where they could muster their military vessels, sailing ships, of course, um, in order to attack uh, Louisbourg. And Halifax was the best port from which to make that operation because uh, it's ice-free year-round. Now, in the days of sail, having an ice-free port in the North Atlantic gave you a huge advantage over all the other European militaristic imperialist powers uh, active in the area, which basically would have been France for the most part. No Spain, no Spain, no Portugal. No. They Poland, were then, Poland's done. Yeah. Uh, Germany ever tried. No, they didn't exist yet. They didn't exist yet. That's exactly. right. Uh, uh, Prussia organized Germany in the mid 19th That's century. Right. Right. Um, but but uh, in any event, uh, so in the contest with, with France, Halifax was, became a major military asset. And that's another point, too, in terms of discussing race relations earlier. Not only was Nova Scotia founded as a slaveholding colony, well, like others as well, but particularly because of the fact that its base was American or Yankee, it had a whole different attitude. It was very serious about, about slavery, uh, as was New France, which is now Quebec, but New France, in fact, had the most slaves, 5,000. So, so the, the slave owners in the new Nova Scotia, so to speak, they didn't have cotton farms, so what were they? They used their slaves for the cornfields, or the lumber yards, or the fish, or? Yeah, a little bit of, of, of everything. Small scale operations, because the economy, uh, sorry, the climate did not allow for major plantation right. type farming. So uh, the slaves who were brought in were brought in as essentially household servants, because these were aristocrats as well. So if you're gonna be an aristocrat, you gotta have a few servants, who of course are, are slaves. Uh, but they were also used for apple uh, harvesting um, and, and orchard work. Uh, many people may not know that, that uh, for a long time, well into the 20th century, um, uh, along with cod, along with the fisheries, Halifax, or sorry, Nova Scotia made a lot of money uh, selling apples, especially to Britain. So the apple uh, harvest was very important, and so slaves were used uh, in the apple industry uh, uh, early on with the arrival of, of, the, of the planters. Now on this clip, George Eliot Clark talks about slavery in the 1700s. The proclamation of emancipation, that was when the British government said that the slaves were free, was in 1863. This was 163 years later. So you can tell that from the 1600s uh, to 1863, slavery was on and popping in our country. So in this case, you could see what they did, 
who brought them here uh, and what exactly was the trade-off? I mean, what what, what was built? Because there was a lot of things built with these people. There was a lot of wealth built out of the backs of a lot of black people. And again, we are only showing the black people, the African descendants. We are not showing the indigenous side, which is a whole nother story. And it's a whole nother different topic that, again, the repercussions are still going on to this day. So definitely something to think about. And again, George Elliott Clark is not the only one. There's a lot of knowledgeable people that knows about this way more than anybody else in Canada. But they're not really, you know, these people are not teaching classes all over or giving speeches. Some they do. They do like George Elliott Clark. They have books and things like that. And you can definitely check them out. George Elliott uh, Clark has a lovely book. Uh, you can check it out on Amazon. He has uh, the, his recent one. And with an interview, you can look it up as one of our past episodes. But this is another researcher from York University. I want to play a clip from her. And you can tell, and she kind of uh, explains why is it a forgotten history. That's why she, she kind of explains a forgotten history. So let's hear. Canada is very much uh, entangled in the history, the long history of the transatlantic slave trade. And we need to do, continue to do a better job of presenting that in our historical past. The aim of my research is to uh, document the scope and the, the nature of the institution of enslavement here in the province through uh, an ex exploration of the experiences and the lives of those who were enslaved. It really is important for me to ensure that their lives, their humanity, and their experiences are firmly situated and anchor the research that I'm doing to better understand uh, how um, enslavement played out in this particular Canadian context. The work that I am undertaking is a formal, a traditional dissertation, but also to put together a website along with a database that will gather a lot of these fragmented uh, archival resources that I've um, retrieved during my research to put them together in this place and to create uh, biographical narratives of um, the people who were who were held in bondage here in Ontario. So uh, for me, it's a work of passion, again, in terms of furthering our understanding of Black and African experiences here in this context and creating uh, new accessible resources for people to learn more and to even teach more about these histories and these stories. History plays an important role in understanding the continuities of the systemic oppression, the systemic um, marginalization uh, against people of African descent. Uh, so all of this is important in understanding the plight of Black Canadians. And when we continue to look at the disproportionate outcomes that Black Canadians face, all of these are interconnected and are rooted in this particular history of anti-Black racism. Shout out to Natasha Henry. She's the researcher and the person you heard on that clip. Uh, she is a researcher for York University on history. And again, she's doing God's work when it comes to 
preserving the history of Canada. Now, in my opinion, this is a subject that we should talk about more because a lot of people are trying to erase this history or are trying to rewrite history. If you look at the United States, which we often do, we had a president, Donald Trump, that said that some races were nice people and rioters and Nazis. And that's the history that people are trying to rewrite. And again, it's easy to be detached from this history because most people were not affected by this. Some people were not part of this. So it's so detached from their realities. But when you're a person of color and you see police brutality, you see that the penitentiary system is full of indigenous and people of color. They're about 50 to 75%, sometimes 80% in a penitentiary when we're not even 10% of the country. Uh, it's alarming to you. You got a reality check real quick that, you know, this happened because of a history and we don't want to repeat this. We want to make it better. But in order for us to make it better, we need to learn from our past. And this is a history that we tend to not talk about it or try to erase it, which is kind of shameful within our society and especially our government that doesn't put more funding on our education system that doesn't put more funding or more emphasis in these things. So again, there's a lot to talk about here, but you know, as a country, we need to do a bit better and not erasing this history in trying to embrace it and talk about it. Uh, for this last thing, we're going to play a story out of Quebec. This is a pretty cool story. Uh, I mean, it's sad, but it's pretty interesting. Uh, and again, it comes from a channel called Canadian, and it's based out of Quebec. Uh, the story is based out of Quebec. So hope you like it. And again, thank you for everybody that's listening. Please give us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you hear it. And shout out to the people that are donating on PayPal and Patreon. That really helps. If you want to donate, please do. It helps out the show. So let's play these clips and we'll see you next time. It's April 10th, 1734, and Montreal is on fire. By the time the flames are extinguished, 45 buildings have burned down. The entire merchant's quarter. Everything you see around me, ashes. The Hotel Dieu. One of North America's very oldest hospitals is consumed by the blaze. The nuns who run it race into the streets with their patients. Montreal's worst nightmare has been realized, and the cause is arson. A woman who lived here, Marie-Joseph-Angélique, is tortured and hanged for the crime. But today, that convicted arsonist is a celebrated historical figure. And the story of how that happened is a disturbing tale one of the darkest chapters in our country's history. This is Canadiana. Marie-Joseph Angélique was a Canadian slave. The history of slavery in Canada is too often overlooked, but we had more than our fair share of it. More than 4,000 people were enslaved in New France and the British colonies, before the practice was finally abolished. Slavery up here looked quite a bit different than it did on the southern plantations of the 13 colonies. In Canada, the enslaved were usually confined to urban areas, forced to act as servants to the elites. Many were black, taken from overseas or south of the border. 
while many others were called Pani, indigenous people captured in battle and then made personal property. Angelique was originally from Madeira, but forced into slavery. She was sold to a Montreal couple when she was just a young woman. She was bought by Francois Poulain de Francheville and his wife Thérèse, who lived here on the Rue Saint-Paul, just across the street from the Hotel Dieu. Angelique's life in Montreal was unsurprisingly horrific. The Francheville's were even suspected of forcing her to carry the children of another black slave. All three of her babies died within months of their birth. But at the end of 1733, there was finally some good news. A smallpox epidemic that killed hundreds of people in Montreal, including Francois Poulain de Francheville. Angélique had been promised her freedom upon Francois's death, possibly a twisted bargain made as part of years of sexual abuse. There was finally some light at the end of the tunnel. There was still one person standing in her way, the widow Francheville. She wasn't about to let Angélique go. She wanted to get her money's worth. Angélique fought back. She demanded her freedom and seems to have threatened the widow with burning and roasting. But the widow Francheville still refused. Instead, she was going to sell her. So Angélique began to plot an escape with her lover, a convict named Claude Thibault. He was a smuggler from France who had been arrested and exiled to Canada, where he ended up becoming the widow's indentured servant. Together, the couple came up with a plan they would escape and find a ship in New England that was headed for Europe. Marie-Joseph Angélique wanted to go home. They would need to hurry. In February, things grew dire. The widow sold Angélique to a man in Quebec City for 600 pounds of gunpowder. The sale would go through as soon as the St. Lawrence thawed, allowing Angélique to be shipped downriver. With the clock of the spring melt ticking, she and Claude had to act fast. Angélique set her bed on fire, a distraction as she and Claude ran off across the frozen river under the cover of darkness. But they didn't get far. The police quickly hunted them down, returned Angélique to the widow, and threw Claude in jail. He wouldn't get out until the day of the next fire. That night, there was an evening mass. Many of Montreal's 2,000 inhabitants were there. Back on Rue Saint-Paul, Angélique waited outside for the widow to return from the service. She was with her friend, Marie Manon, an enslaved Pani woman who worked next door. They played a game to pass the time, seeing who could run across the street to the Hotel Dieu the fastest. A soldier stood in the door to the hospital. A few children played in the street. Suddenly, the soldier yelled, fire! Rue Saint-Paul was burning. All hell broke loose. There were evacuations, looters, bucket brigades trying to quash the flames. Amazingly, no one was killed, but many, including the neighborhood's poorest residents, were left homeless. In the wake of the disaster, a rumor began to spread. Some claimed they'd heard Angélique say, Ma maîtresse ne couchera pas dans sa maison ce soir. It was the rumor that sealed her fate. The city was reeling, looking for someone to blame. Angélique was arrested immediately and charged with arson, a crime punishable by death. Many witnesses claimed they'd seen the fire start in the attic of the widow Francheville's home. And in a colony where lawyers had been banned by King Louis XIV, 
it was up to Angelique to defend herself. It was her word against hearsay. One after another, 23 of the 24 witnesses told basically the same story. They'd all heard the rumor. Angelique had bragged that the widow would not be sleeping at home. The source of the rumor was Marie Manon, the panny slave from next door. But six weeks into the inquiry, the prosecution still needed something more substantial than that. Like, say, a confession extracted by torture. So that's what they were gonna get. Until a new witness was uncovered. It was the widow's own five-year-old niece who told the judge she'd seen Angelique head up to the attic with a shovel full of coal. The little girl looked at Angelique and said, tu es monté en haut. That was it. Angelique was sentenced to have her hands cut off and then be burned alive at the stake. After a pathetic excuse of an appeal, her sentence was lessened. She would be hanged and then burned. But first, she would be tortured. You see, a death sentence wasn't enough. Her lover, Claude Thibault, he'd vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. They wanted to know whether he or anyone else had acted as her accomplice. So they brought out the boot, a medieval torture device. They enlisted another black slave to perform the procedure. Mathieu Levey had been convicted of murder in the Caribbean, and they gave him a choice, be executed or become an executioner. He placed two wooden boards on either side of Angelique's legs and tied a rope around them tight. Then he hammered a wedge between her knees. As he drove the wedge down, her bones were crushed. They called this ordinary torture. Angelique confessed, saying she had set the fire, but insisted that she'd acted alone. So Levey took another wedge and drove it between her ankles. This they called extraordinary torture. He brought the hammer down again four times. Angelique repeated her confession and begged to be put out of her misery. Broken and suffering, she was loaded onto a cart and brought here to the famous Notre Dame. She carried a torch in one hand and a sign that said incendiaire. She was paraded before the crowd and then taken inside and made to confess her sins to God. Her torturer became her executioner. Levey brought Angelique to be hanged in front of the ruins of the fire. Her body was kept there on public display for hours after she took her final breath, until finally, with the same torch she had carried to the gallows, they burned her lifeless body and scattered her ashes to the wind. The story of the executed slave was buried over the next two centuries, forgotten in favor of tales of Canada's role in the Underground Railroad. That is the slavery narrative we prefer to tell ourselves. It wasn't until recently the historians unearthed the preserved documents of the trial, helping to shed light on one of Canada's darkest episodes. Marie-Joseph Angelique has become an inspiration to many. 
Immortalized in paintings, plays, and myths, she's become a symbol of resistance, still lighting fires more than 200 years after her death. <laughs> 